This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl, where you might have seen the story this week about Charlotte the Stingray in North Carolina, who is pregnant but hasn't had a male partner in years. How does this work? We get into that in this episode, plus the power of clay and that smell before it rains. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Now, Dr. Carl, is there anything in particular in the science world this week that has kind of caught your fancy or anything that you've Yes. Yeah. Um, we've just approved a new gravitational wave detector. Wow. And you're thinking, what use is pure science? Well, uh, a few Australian scientists went trying to find black holes and that invented Wi-Fi for us. Um, Einstein did his stuff and now we've got GPS. And we've got a gravitational wave detector that can pick up over four kilometres, a distance change of one ten thousandth the diameter of a proton. Now I want to do the same thing a million times bigger, a million times bigger in space. And you're thinking, what use will it be to pick up gravitational waves? Well, somebody once said in the early days, what use is this stuff you call electricity? Mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. There will be something coming out of it. What it is, I have no idea. And it can take gravitational waves from the millionth? Them. Well, uh, okay, okay. What we've got is at the stage where we can pick up gravitational waves happening across uh, an arm four kilometres long, Mm -hmm. and we can also pick up gravitational waves, we think, from all the pulsars in the sky as a background, and we'll be able to pick up gravitational waves of a different frequency with different uh, objects over a range of one million kilometres. And the real thing is we are heading towards the uh, hoverboard as in Back to the Future 3. If we can uh, pick up gravitational waves, we'll be able to manipulate gravity. Okay, I let the cat out of the bag. That's why the scientists are really doing all this stuff. They want to get the hoverboard. I want my hoverboard. Okay, right. All right. Well, you can read up more on that. We've got Dan in Brisbane Dr. here. Dan. Dan. Welcome. Good Tell morning. us what's going Good on. I have a question uh, regarding the gym uh, and its effects on sexual energy. Uh, I'm finding I'm quite lucky. I work from home and my wife goes to the gym three times a week, but uh, about 90% of the time on the gym days, I'm getting the call up uh, for a sexual purpose after the gym. And about 10% of the day she doesn't go to the gym, I don't get the call up. And I'm wondering if the exercise and gym activity has an effect on the sexual cycle. All right, Dan, way to get on national radio and tell us you're getting laid. All right. Thanks a lot. No. Uh, <laughs> six, six, hang on. 16 years of marriage. Happy to say it. Yes, Dan. Still okay. got it. Okay, sorry. Back to Carl. No, back to you, – you've raised a good point there. Is this based on memory or have you written it down? Uh, this has been written down and I'm ringing today because I've, I've got some numbers against it. 90% of the time on gym days, 10% on days without the gym. And what's your sample size? Like how many days? Three or, or 30 or 300 or 3,000? Oh, that's about three years' worth of data, Dr. Carl. Does your spouse know that this data is being collected? Didn't Look, you sign an ethics agreement? I've, sti- I've stitched her up a little bit today as well. She's got the radio on at work thinking I might be on the radio, but she doesn't know what we're talking about, so it's going to be quite funny. Okay, so we'll make up a fake name for you and a fake address and everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I came across an article about six months ago called Exercise and Viagra. Now, it turns out that... Exercise and gym work has kind of the same effect as Viagra. And this only came out in a peer-reviewed literature only a few months ago, and here you are proving it yourself on a 
it wasn't a double-blind crossover control study. But nevertheless, yes, so there is something. What the exact details are, we don't know. But, you know, like, I mean, feeling good, feeling good, wonderful. So there is a link between... Yes, Obviously, yes. fitness giving us endorphins and energy oh, and then that... Not endorphins. What? Something. There's a million chemicals. Just don't right. mention endorphins. It could be any one of a million chemicals. Okay. If you're not going to mention endorphins, then don't mention serotonin or dopamine. Oh. Okay, because they're just some of the many... Compo- Sorry to pick on you. No, 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 you're please. you're my bestie and everything. But, but, it, but you got to... So, you, you know, the runner's high. Mm. People used to say that was due to endorphins. No, it's due to your natural cannabinoids. Oh. Right, okay. What are cannabinoids? Uh, natural cannabis. So you might ask yourself, I'm... Mm made of meat and marijuana is made of vegetable, how come meat, the vegetable works on meat? And it's because you make your own natural cannabis chemicals. We only discovered this 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Getting back to our sex boy, uh, <laughs> we don't know the pathway by which it happens, but it has definitely been proven firstly by peer-reviewed research and secondly by Triple J people. Look, please leave your address with the staff. You deserve the, the Triple J fun pack. Even though you're first cab off the rank, you're getting a Triple J fun pack and a book from me. Yes. Oh, thank you, doctors. For doing, okay. the, for doing the test. We and love and that. I'll include a copy of the paper for you as well on Viagra and sex. Ah, oh, fantastic. And, and well, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Right here on Triple J, it is Signs with Dr. Carl. We've got Claire in Melbourne. Claire. Now, Claire, you've got a question about seagulls. I do. How are you, doctors? Very well, thank you. Um, my workmates and I are very concerned about the seagulls down at the beach. If they eat too many chips, could they have a cholesterol problem? I'm fairly willing to bet, based on zero knowledge, that the number of papers looking at blood cholesterol levels in seagulls is close to zero. <laughs> and this is a fault with our society. We should know this. Mm. Like, I know because do ants also get diabetes eating too much sugary treats. What? Say that again? Could ants get diabetes if they eat too many sugary treats? It's not the answer that gets you the Nobel Prize. It's uh, the question. And you are asking the deepest, wonderfulest questions I've come across all morning. <laughs> oh, my God. The answer is I don't know. But uh, am I being stupidly generous offering another fun pack? Or is that too soon? Only one, one, one per week. Sorry, Okay, Claire. too soon. Look, oh. in our minds, <laughs> we are going to send you the, the cardboard medal. But in our hearts, we think you deserve it for such good questions. To, the answer is we don't know. Look, it is possible because... Um, seagulls have got their own, I'm guessing, protein-rich diet. They have a short gut. So the potato part oh. of the chip um, is not going – they're not going to get maximum nutrition out of that. And fats, they are usually saturated fats. Um, look, I don't know. We need an ornithologist to ring up. Ah, um, oh. a, 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 a Claire Collins in, orna, in birds. In birds, In birds, yeah. yeah, okay. But Claire, people shouldn't be feeding the seagulls. I know, but don't they snatch? Oh, yeah, they do, don't they? Well, and that's why, <laughs> because they've been accustomed to people feeding them. So then they go and grab it out of your hand. Oh, I was up at West Head in Sydney and I had a hamburger and it was literally one fist distance from my mouth and I saw this flash of light mm. and then a baby kookaburra went past and grabbed the hamburger out of my hand and on my face but not on my hand there was just the merest kiss of a feather mm. and it was gone. Yeah. Man, they're good. Yeah, I once I remember I was walking through Crown Street Mall in yep. Wollongong. I had, in Wollongong. I had a donut. Both Wollongong kids, by the way, audience. Yeah, kids of the gong. I had a donut and I still remember the feeling of the seagull's uh, foot on my head. What? Yeah, it like went off my foot and grabbed the donut. I mean, off my forehead, 
with its foot, grabbed the donut and flew off. It was devastating. It was because devastating. Because it was the only donut and you as a poor orphan only had one do- donut per year and That's that was it, it or something like that. That was my like one that. treat. Wollongong, the hard streets of Wollongong. Yeah. <laughs> it is Science with Dr Carl. We are answering your science questions and something exciting is happening this week. Jono in Newey, do you want to tell us about it? I've uh, just got a quick question about the stingray that they're having captivity and they've found it to be pregnant, but it hasn't had contact with any other stingrays. Ah. How is this possible, Dr. Carl, if it doesn't have a male companion? Ah, well, I will tell you a word that you probably have not heard of before. Parthenogenesis, which is not giving birth to a large Greek building 2,000 years old, but rather the act where females give birth to females, and so on indefinitely. There are advantages and disadvantages. Advantages, the population can expand like crazy because every creature can have babies. Disadvantage, they're all the same. So if the environment changes, either they shift or they suffer. Because the thing about sex is that the babies are slightly different from the parents and have different characteristics. It was observed in what are called the whiptail lizard in the southern deserts of the USA and then observed more and more around the world. I think we might have mentioned a while ago that aphids can do this. They'll go into parthenogenesis when the temperature is high and into sexual reproduction when low. How what, what happened on this case? Don't know. Now, fish are a bit different. Fish can do the thing of changing. I get always confused. They change their gender or their sex. I get confused. Well, well, well they change one of them anyway. They, they go from being... XX to XY equivalent. So you can have a bunch of fish and there's the the boss fish and that's a male and this happens to some sort of fish on the Great Barrier Reef. I don't know what it is. And if that fish dies, one of the other ones who is an XX female type fish says, blow this for joke, turns into an XY and becomes a male. Wow. Wow. So I don't know the fine details, but this is really is – that, is that what you were calling about? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect, yep. Yeah. So I would recommend uh, read up on parthenogenesis in Wikipedia um, and then write a paper on it and then send it to us. And if you get 80%, we'll give you a cardboard medal because we love you. <laughs> no worries. Thank Thanks, you, Dr. Jono. Jono. Yeah. Round stingray in a North Carolina aquarium named Charlotte. Charlotte. She's the size of a dinner plate. Hang Could on, give birth to as many as four pups in the next two weeks. Oh, wow. And, and stingrays have got a sort of a rectangular body, then a long tail. And at the end, they seem to have a sting that firstly has a poison, but secondly, seems to aim for the heart muscle. And there's been several cases where humans have had the sting of the stingray mm. just go strang, straight in above the heart. They, it could have gone for the belly. It could have gone for the other side of the chest. There was a case of a kid in Coogee in the 1940s or something, and his whole body it went straight into where the heart was. And it actually penetrated and went into the heart. Oh, gosh. Got to be careful. Be careful with stingrays. Oh, and Botley Bay used to be called Stingray Bay. Oh, really? Yeah, so when Captain Cook came in, there were all these stingrays coming out of the place and they thought, oh, Stingray Bay. And then he went, Sir Joseph Banks went ashore, who was incredibly tall, um, and then he brought back so many botanical specimens to England, to the United Kingdom, that firstly, uh, 
They renamed Botany Bay, or Stingray Bay, as Botany Bay. And secondly, he increased from that one single voyage the number of botanical specimens that the human race knew by one quarter. Australia was such a diverse place back then. We have a new question from Jane in Armadale. Jane, what do you want to know? I came across an article from 1987 in the New York Times which said, if you take a lump of clay and hit it with a hammer, it blows ultraviolet energy for a month. I'm just wondering why this might be. Do you have the article in front of you? Um, no. What, what else what did it, it say? Uh, it was just going into all the amazing qualities of clay that we haven't come to understand yet um, in terms of, uh, for example, DNA replication. Um, I was thinking that. Knowing, <laughs> knowing less about clay than we do about biology. Firstly, you have given me some homework. I'm going to chase this article up. I was initially sceptical when I saw your request pop up on the screen, thinking possible that you can put energy into something and it'll come out in another form. Mm. Yeah, okay, maybe it could come out as ultraviolet. And then for a month, and I'm thinking, give me a break. Yes, no, possibly. But then you mentioned it was in the New York Times, which is a journal of record and normally pretty accurate, and they base their stuff on science, and you hit the nail on the head. So do you remember that casual comment just then, Lucy, that Jane made with DNA replication? Mm. Okay, so one of the big problems in life, which you'll see if you read that book, um, Lessons in Chemistry, or see the series, they're both good, mm. is abiogenesis. You and I are both made of chemicals, but they're not alive. And if we take us apart, we can go all the way down and nowhere do we find life, but somehow we're alive. And part of it is how do you go from chemicals into life? And Jane did a wonderful thing when she said DNA replication because you've got this DNA ladder of life and you've got these rungs and they're a certain distance apart and blow me down, clay, and there's many different types, and clay is really special stuff, has the right spacing to act as a framework to hold part of the molecules in place so they're all lined up neatly. And so if you come across another lump of clay, they can all come together and you begin to form your first DNA, we think. We haven't found that yet. Uh, We have found that happening, but we haven't ever found it go all the way into life. And three weeks ago, we just discovered how you can make the cell membrane. The cell membrane is this barrier. On the inside, we can think about your skin. On the inside, there's wonderful organisation. And outside, there's chaos and things falling down and wind and leaves and rain and stuff. How do you make a cell membrane? And they discovered, they, the scientists, a few weeks ago, that if you go to a hydrothermal vent on the ocean floor where hot water comes out at temperatures up to 400 degrees C, but if you pick one that's about 60 degrees C and it's slightly alkaline, you can have... If you've got an iron-rich environment and a few organic chemicals, they can spontaneously form themselves into what looks like a cell membrane. So here's two hints of where life came from. One, from Jane, DNA replication. Thank you very much for that article. I didn't believe you on originally. And secondly, (laughs) the article just a few weeks ago about cell membranes. Thank you so much, Jane. I want to give her a present too, but we can't. We can only give one per show. Thanks, Santa, today. (laughs) Yeah. Scientific Santa. Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. And we've got Duan here. Duan, what's your question? Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Look, my query was about um, today it seems like there's not um, infinite resources that we have. Everyone talks about climate change, and I think we've come to that realisation. So I'm thinking, like, 
same as when I get on a lift. There's only so many people you can cram into a lift. So I'm just curious to know if there's, you know, if Dr. Carl or the scientific community have an idea of how many people can we keep cramming onto this planet um, and, and still sustain it because, you know, we've got over 8 billion people here now. We're growing by a million a week. There's got to be a number. I'm just interested to know. Okay, well, ignore the fact that we're being really wasteful. And we'll ignore the fact that 40% of all food is wasted, usually the production side in the poorer countries, the fridge consumer side in the wealthy countries. We'll ignore that and we'll go for the concept, look this up on Wikipedia, Earth Overshoot Day. So, you know, you're trying to park in a certain spot and instead of stopping there, you drive a little bit further, you overshoot it. Earth Overshoot Day. And we've been doing this since the 1970s. And the average for the world, Earth Overshoot Day, when we use up all of our resources that can be rebuilt sustainably for that year, it's kind of around a quarter of the way into the year. No, hang on, maybe... 70% of the way into the year. But if you look at Qatar, if the whole world lived like Qatar, we'd use up all of our renewable resources within, by February 10, Luxembourg, February 14, and coming in at fourth place, Australia at March 22. So what we're doing is we're digging into the piggy bank of our children. And we don't have to do that. We can do things better. So... You've raised a really important issue that we, when we have children, we love them and we want them to have a good life, but we shouldn't use up their resources greedily as we are doing now. And what you're doing is raising awareness. So everybody, I say, go into Wikipedia and look up Earth Overshoot Day and do. And, and I remember my daughter Alice one day. I, I was brushing my teeth and she said, "Dad, she was about nine years old. Why are you leaving the water on while you're brushing your teeth?" Mm. And I said. I don't know, but you're right. I shouldn't. So, yeah. uh, you, look, you, you did right. You know, you, you've raised a really good issue. We've got Ty in Adelaide here. Ty, got a question about bubbles. Dr. Ty, welcome. I've always wondered why do bubbles in the bubble bath run out? Like, why doesn't it just continue to create bubbles? Ah, two things happening with the bubbles. They're in a gravitational field and they can evaporate water. So they can evaporate off water. So think about the bubble. You've got this membrane made of water and a bit of something to reduce the surface tension like detergent. And it's around a bubble of air. It's holding air. If you have one in space, on a space shuttle, uh, on a space station, they last longer. But on Earth the water tends to drain down. So the wall thickness of the bubble gets thinner on the top and and thicker at the bottom, and eventually at the top it gets so thin that it just pops. There's a second factor, which is evaporation. Things go down gradients. A ball will roll down a hill, and the water molecules will go from high water to low water, so the membrane's high in water, the air is low in water, and it'll just go off, so eventually all the bubbles fade away. So you've used up your detergent to reduce the surface tension. But part of me is thinking, why can't you keep on using those detergent molecules again? And I don't know enough chemistry. Okay. 
Oh, I failed you on that. That's what I was bit. really wondering why yeah, you just can't be. You know, turn the tap back on and it starts bubbling up again. Mm. So maybe those molecules get broken down. I don't know enough chemistry. Come on, chemists. What are you doing for your <laughs> fabulous salaries almost as much as plumbers? And without plumbers, we have no civilization. Come on down. Ty, I think it's yep. just I think it's just the bubbles and the baths way of saying you need to get out. They need a rest. Yeah. They need a rest. Okay. And, and that's the real reason the tennis players grunt because their undies are too tight. Really? Just putting it out here. Just putting it out there, man. We got Stacy from Currajong here. Stacy, you got a question about soft drink? Yes. Um, my family and I moved to uh, Boulder, Colorado in 2016, and we noticed when we were drinking our soft drinks, they seemed to go flatter quicker, and I didn't know whether that was because we lived near Denver, which is a mile above sea level, and whether there was a correlation there. Hmm. Ah. I love living. Uh, I, I was in Colorado for a little while, and I went. In, I actually got into um, NORAD, that invisible, the other mountain that they hollowed out for to survive mm-hmm. nuclear weapons. And yes. your solution to the problem is a hundred percent correct. Yay. Now it is. So, we, we, with our last caller, I mentioned the concept of a, a gradient. So gradients are pushing reactions along all the time. So you've got a, a gradient on a hill, and the ball will roll down the gravity gradient or you've got pure water in a dish and you put in a 100% concentrated food dye, mm-hmm. green, and right where it is is 100% and next to it is zero so it'll go down the concentration gradient. Mm-hmm. In the case of the gas in a bottle, I don't know what pressure it is but in champagne it's six atmospheres. So in champagne it's trying to go from six atmospheres to one atmosphere, but when you're up at Boulder, Colorado, you're going from, say, six atmospheres, not just down to one, but down to 0.8, we'll say. And so that's a slightly steeper hill, and so the the soft drinks will go flatter faster. Wow, how observant of you. You're wonderful. (laughs) We thought we were going mad, but maybe we thought it was science-related. Oh, well, science is a way to not get fooled. Thanks, Stacey. <laughs> Thank you. We got Jenny from Painesville. Uh, Jenny, what's your question? Hello, Dr. Carl. Dr. Um, my question is, um, just before it rains, there's a smell in the air. I'm just wanting to know what is that that we can smell? Aha. I get this from CSIRO research done a third or half a century ago, plus old episodes of Doctor Who, oh. Petricor. So core as in sort of smell or something in the air. I'm forgetting the Greek root. I'm so bad on my classical Greek. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing you forgot it all too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It just goes like that, mate, if you don't use it every day. Gone are the days when I talk in classical Greek to my friends. And Petri means rock. So in the environment around you is rock. If you live in a city, it might be concrete, but there's always rocks somewhere and they absorb the chemicals from the plants in their porous surface. Actually, I used the word wrongly. I said absorb, as in B for Bravo. It should be D for Delta, adsorb, which means you absorb, but only in a very, very top layer. So everything rocky in the environment attracts or absorbs the chemicals from the trees and then just before it rains, the humidity goes up and the chemicals come out again. That's called petrichor. So the smell before rain is called petrichor. The smell after rain is usually caused by bacillus subtilis, a little bacterium, um, and it gets it's in the ground. The raindrops hit the ground and it gets popped up. And by the way, just for a little aside on bacillus subtilis, 
it's a tough little bugger. Mm. The Americans, before they went to the moon, they sent up a rocket called the Ranger to go looking and it landed on the moon and, and it, it proved that you could land on the moon and not just sink through all the, the dust and they had a TV camera on it. Apollo okay. 12 landed near the Ranger, took the camera off, put in a sterile bag, put it back to Earth. There were spores of Bacillus subtilis that had survived a couple of years in the vacuum of space on the surface of the moon under the hard uh, radiation and the high temperatures. Okay, there you are. Uh, (laughs) That smells before and after rain 101. So Thank you. But you smell it before the raindrops hit the ground. Oh, yeah, so that's that's the petrichor. So the the petrichor is the humidity, we, we think, causing the rock, the concrete, to sort of give up. It's vapour. That's the one before. And the one after is a slightly different smell and almost certainly not harmful. Luke from Albury. Luke, you're looking ahead to the future. What's what's your question? Hey, guys, how are we going? Uh, I've got a question about the new Apple Vision Pro. So with the release of this, um, the augmented reality and virtual reality seems to only be a step or two away. Yes. Um, and Elon Musk, he has created Neuralink and he's just put it into the first human brain. So do you think that the software for the Apple Vision will be able to be installed into our brain via something like Neuralink, eventually being able to maybe lead to our consciousness being uploaded to the new virtual reality? You've covered so many issues like up consciousness, we don't even know what that is, being uploaded to reality, how do you store it, how do you generate it, uh, Neuralink. Uh, just a little note, I know this is hard for you to believe, but Elon Musk was not in charge of the putting the first implants into the brain. Um, I remember I was sitting in the ante room in my first professional job at the hospital in the late 1970s. And I was in a cardiac operating theatre and we were doing an operation and there was something quiet and I had a copy of Nature and on the front cover was an X-ray of a human skull. Wow. With a plug, a big plug, <gasps> like the size of a golf ball. <sighs> and what had happened was this was the first implant into the brain in the late 1970s, which is perhaps a little bit more than last week, as Neil Elon Musk claimed. Mm. And what had happened was that this person had been involved in an accident that destroyed the front of their face, they lost their eyes, and they'd put a plug and a TV camera, a plug, like like your normal 240 volt plug thingies, that, that big, that, that clunky, and they joined it up to parts of their brain with 64 electrodes and now they can see. They wow. can see light and dark. We've now moved to the stage where we've got something, if you look at your little fingernail, they've got two computer chips, each the size of your fingernail, and put them in the broker's area of your brain, which turns electricity into speech. And they then trained this woman over a period of time because she was what we call locked in. Mm. So locked in, mate, your brain works fine. You can't move anything. You can't even blink your eyelids. Nothing. You're locked in. It's a terrible thing. And she had just the slightest hint of a twitch on one eye and they managed to work out that she she was locked in but fully conscious. And so they chose her and they trained her and so they could say hello to her and then her consciousness would 
think I want to say hello back. And all the electrical waves would come towards these two computer chips in the broker's area, which then coordinates that complicated thing that we call speech. Your lungs shift, the air comes out of your diaphragm, muscles move, your mouth moves, your tongue moves. She couldn't do any of that. Uh, And then out of a computer terminal would come 70% of the time, hello back, right? So even though she was locked in, she could now speak. So this thing that Elon Musk has done is more advertising than, you know, creating brand new ground that nobody else has ever done before. Mm. So he's, he's exaggerating himself a little bit, uh, or, or rather the work of the scientists. Consciousness too hard. Luke. Is that a chook? Do you have a rooster in the background? Yeah, I'm out of the job. I'm just outside of out the farm. Oh, my God. oh. <laughs> oh. we've got to do a translation. That's amazing. What does... Oh, I don't know what that yeah. means, but for our non-Australian viewers or listeners, they don't know what a chook is. Oh, a chicken. Can you explain a chook to our non-Australian listeners? A chicken. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. A yeah. rooster. Yeah. A hen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the chicken family. Thanks, yeah. Luke. Thanks, Luke. No worries. All right. Yeah. Whoa, Someone texting hard. in saying, wow, you've just blown my brain. That is amazing. It is incredible to think about. It's kind of scary to think about. Not the chook, the Conscious- brain yeah. implant consciousness thing. We, we are getting there, but look... Uh, did I mention about the 3,300 new brain cells they discovered the other day? No. So when I went through medical school, there were 400 cell types known in the body. And in the 2017, American scientists said, look, there's something going on in the brain. Let's start a brain project. And the results came through in December that there are not just five types of brain cells that we knew of, but 3,300. What? We kind of know a little bit what the five do. The remaining 2,295 we've got no idea of. Uh, so... That might be related to consciousness. So getting back to our previous caller's question about can we upload consciousness, mate, we've got no idea what consciousness is. We've got no idea what those 3,300 cells do. We've got a long way to go. How do you even find those cells? With a lot of work and a lot of scientists and a lot of AI and um, a few hundred million dollars in eight years. Oh, my gosh. We've got Jake in Melbourne here. Jake, what's Dr. your Jake, question? welcome. Yeah, g'day, Dr. Carl. So I've noticed that when you're eating food and you exhale through your nose while chewing, I feel like you can. Your I feel like your taste buds activate a lot more. So Mate, you're number four or five on the show today with incredibly deep insights into observations around the world because you have got a bunch of taste buds on your tongue. We know of five different types, and if you're breathing out through your mouth, then that's stopping food tastes from coming in and landing on your tongue. So they're only coming in through your nose. So you would be diminishing the amount of input that your tongue is getting from the outside world. So we should have, this is a whole episode of some food show about how you should breathe in and out through your nose mm. so you get maximum enjoyment of your food. So hang on, say that again. So if you're, so, so you've got taste receptors on your tongue and there's not only the slushy food, but there's also the smells from the food landing on your tongue. There's the smells from the food and they're stimulating your tongue taste receptors as well. And if you breathe out through your tongue, they don't, they get blown away. They don't get to land on your tongue. Okay. So you're actually slightly diminishing the enhancement, the extra enjoyment. Wow. That is true because when you do, if you have a spag bowl and you get a whole lot of mince and then you breathe out slowly because it's too hot, you're not tasting it at the same time, are you? It kind of alleviates... It's just sitting there. That's, oh, my God. Look, thank you so much for that wonderful, insightful question that forced my, us all to think of different things about eating food. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. If you are not in the fam yet, what are you doing? Make sure you subscribe, like, do whatever you've got to do on your preferred podcast platform to make sure you are the first to know when a new episode drops. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Sarah Harvey and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.